Hi, I'm James. And I'm Drew. And welcome to Graphic Support Group, a mindful podcast for the design industry and the self, where empathy and the creative cloud meet. Join us as we delve into the mind and soul of graphic design, from PSDs to PTSD. This is Graphic Support Group. James. I'm Drew. And we're here with, uh, pardon me as I try to pronounce this, but uh, Shruti Manjula Balakrishna. Um, and she is a designer and researcher based in Austin. Um, she's one part of Foda Studio. Um, she has an insanely diverse career from academia to agency life. And currently she's teaching at the University of Texas while pursuing her PhD at NC State. Uh, we were introduced to each other by uh, um, Ian Lynham, a great pal based in Tokyo. And so we're really excited to have her here today and talk about her practice and background. Uh, welcome, Shruti. Thank you so much for having me over. I'm so excited to be talking to you all. Yeah. Yeah, thank um, you. Yeah, thank you. Do you have anything else to add to that short bio? Who, me? Um, yeah. No, I think that was a very uh, apt and uh, succinct uh, introduction. Thank you so much. Okay. Great. Um, so we like to have, uh, we have like a new question. So we'd like to start off with asking you, how do you feel about design today? Wow. I thought you said you're going to ease into this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, overall, I think um, I feel very positive about where graphic design is today. Um, it's it's a kind of moved away. I'm, I'm talking specifically about graphic design. Um, I always kind of questioned the idea of um, the title that we kind of carry with us as graphic designers. Um, it, it For some reason, I always felt like it the phrase graphic design was very self-referential, mm -hmm. uh, has a very self-referential nature towards graphics. And um, especially because we live in a world of art and design and architecture, language, metaphor, culture, you mix all of these things. Today's designers are so interdisciplinary. Um, they just can't do one thing. Um, right. You know, they're printmakers and curators and artists. Um, and the notion of responsibility has been so uh, instilled in today's designers, which makes right. me feel very positive about yeah. uh, design in general. Yeah. I think the idea of responsibility is interesting, too, because it's something that we've been kind of mulling about lately because we've had to present our podcast to uh, a conference. And so mm -hmm. there's this sense that we share that we want to create a space of care and support and the responsibility behind that. Um, so that's really interesting that you mentioned that. Um, could you just, I know that Ian mentioned that you have like a really diverse career, but could you just kind of run through some of the different capacities that you've worked in over the years? Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I'm originally from India 
And um, I think as of today, I consider myself as a legitimate love child <laughs> of strategy and creativity. <laughs> uh, and I say that uh, because um, early on in my career, I, I started working as a brand manager and a strategist um, for an advertising firm based out of India. And um, I had uh, I had joined an art school and I dropped out of it because of this internship opportunity. And um, I fell in love with advertising. Um, and I was like, oh, looks like I'm gonna get hands-on learning. So I dropped out of the uh, art school and I that's how I started my career. It's, it began in the industry of advertising. Um, and then when I moved to um, America, after I got married, and this was in 2011, um, I decided to jump onto the creative side of advertising business um, and become a creator. Um, and that's when I uh, uh, got myself a bachelor's in graphic and web design. And at that point, um, I was still very interested to work for advertising agencies. Um, this was in Denver or Colorado. Um, and I had the privilege uh, and I was fortunate to work with some of the best uh, 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 advertising agencies in um, Colorado. And it was amazing um, working on. Um, it was amazing only because my understanding of advertising was specifically rooted in India. But the clients I was handling there, one was a Japanese client and the other one was a German client. And I was getting this very different understanding of advertising when I, I joined the advertising firms here in uh, in the U.S. However, it, it, it was a lot of fun kind of being a designer and not having to worry about, at that point, not having to worry about strategy and communicating with clients and budget and things like that. Um, the 360 how, package. Exactly, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, um, I, I did not miss that. It was so nice to be handed a brief and kind of internally, um, 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 when I say internally, when the creative team kind of brainstorms ideas and then you kind of like pass it on. Um, from there, I think at that point, um, I, that's when I started my grad school work um, and I was still very active in the world of advertising and there was a paradigm shift in my thinking or in my understanding of who I am as a designer and who I wanted to be as a designer. And I feel like at that point, I was hitting a, a burnout point within the industry of advertising. But I still love being a designer, but I, I, I wasn't sure if I wanted to contribute to design within the world of advertising. So from there on, um, I was like, I'm going to press pause and probably um, um, uh, um, work for as an in-house designer um, and, you know, still play the role of graphic design, but not like really sell, sell, sell kind of an attitude towards design. support now? We love hearing from the design community. Call us at 202-507-9158.
please share your story with us after the tone. We'll do our best to respond on our podcast. Please leave a name or alias, design role, and location. Thank you for your call. Because it was not, um, and like, like I was saying, um, the role that um, I was interviewing for was specifically for Google for the retail design team. So I was like, oh, mm-hmm. great. Um, this is not advertising, but I'm still going to be in the marketing industry somehow. Um, right. And I, I, I'll just get to design. Um, it, it was interesting, but um, um, Google being Google... Um, and because the team was very new and um, um, there were, I, I, I felt the burn, burn out pretty sooner than probably the rest of the team. And I was continuing my um, a, a grad, grad school research and studies. And I was like, I don't know, I, I, I was kind of feeling very suffocated about the idea of designing for large conglomerates. And I, I, I kind of missed the intimacy that I was seeking that I wanted to feel as a graphic designer with like large firms and corporations um and from there on um i i moved to when i i decided to move to austin because uh my partner was living and working out of austin um and and that's how austin happened um and i picked up the first um opportunity that came my way which was uh through Gensler, which is an architecture firm. So I was like, this is fantastic. I still get to be a designer in a completely different discipline. And um, I was curious, I was hungry. I was, um, um, I think at this point, I'm okay to say I was really desperate to move to Austin. I was desperate for a job. I'm like, boom, let's do this. Um, And that was, that's how I kind of stepped into the world of architecture um, as a graphic designer, which was fascinating. Um, and it was kind of like all lining up. Um, so I, I mentioned I was in grad school throughout this different transitions every time. And this was at VCFA where, uh, Ian, um, uh, teaches as well. How do you do all, how did you do grad school with, you had a full-time job too? So VCFA is low residency. Yeah. But still like you're doing a full, full full-time student load of work. Yeah, it, it it was certainly a bunch of uh, juggling to do. I think at that point in time, what worked in my favor was there was no domestication aspect associated with my time management uh, because my partner was, I felt like I had all this time under the sun. It was like work, come back home and like, you know, read and uh, write and draw and make. So it, 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 it was okay. I think it kind of went really well. And with VCFA, the structure is phenomenal. And um, every advisor I had was fantastic. And there was a lot of self-reflection that was happening even before I started like designing and started commenting or critiquing graphic design, which was certainly helpful. Um, and for the audience, what is, what is, what, what do you mean? I mean, I think I know what you mean, but what, what is low residency like refer to? Just the number of, like a small amount of people 
in the program, but also, uh, yes, what, what there, it, it does mean small, uh, a group, but also, um, the way, the way VCFA is low residency is structured is, um, you are assigned an advisor every semester and you, it's basically distance learning. You get to carve, um, your path. What is it that you want to read? What is it that you want to research, uh, write and make? And so you're doing all of this independently, um, not while you're not on campus. Hmm. However, once every six months, we meet for a week long of immersion week or um, uh, basically where it's intense week of uh, lectures and critiques and pinups and um, um, workshops. Um, so you, you walk away from these residencies feeling like you are an overwatered houseplant because there's so much information, <laughs> zero time to process. And yeah. then you kind of come back and you kind of soak it all up and then you start working independently. That kind of gives you the room to like have a professional career um, that will also help you support uh, your uh, um, academia financially. Yeah. So it, it works out great, especially for working professionals who want to uh, pursue. I, I'm also curious how you ended up at NC State. It's actually through VCFA. Uh, during one of my residencies there, um, Meredith Davis, um, who um, I think at that point was um, the director of the PhD program um, at NC State, and I might completely be getting her title wrong, but I think she was one of the foundational uh, members of the PhD program at NC State, was visiting our residency as a visiting designer um, and she spent the entire week with us um, critiquing our work, uh, uh, sharing ideas about uh, design and writing. And it was amazing to just spend that uninterrupted time with her. And that, that was the first time um, I came across um, that there was a program, a PhD program around for graphic mm -hmm. design specifically. And I was not aware of any such programs until then. And I think that was the first time that seed was sown um, in my head, and I was so curious about it. Um, however, um, uh, it was it it is a full time program where you have to be on campus. It's not a distance learning program, and that kind of was like in the back burner. And during the pandemic, um, I was aware uh, educational organizations and systems were coming up with these hybrid modules for education, considering everything was virtual. And I was kind of curious um, if, if any such programs have been born during 2020. And when I started doing my research, that's when I came across the DDES program um, at NC State, which is different from the PhD uh, program. Okay. Um, and, and I was thrilled and I was nervous and curious at the same time. I was like, if I don't do this now, I don't know if it's going to happen when. Right. Um, and that's that's how NC State happened. Yeah. Um, yeah, a lot of people DDS, have been pursuing their um, their PhD during COVID because they can do their coursework online. Uh, I know I've benefited <laughs> from that a bit. Um, so you've had oh like, you've like played so many different roles in so many different capacities. And I know you mentioned in our emails that you're studying adaptive uh, practices between advertising and design. Um, I kind of wanted to explore that more from like a mentality. Um, mm -hmm. be being able to adapt across many careers and 
maybe if there's any tie-ins between your background and your biography that allow you to do that, allow you to maybe like hear yourself, like this is where I can borrow from this experience and this is where I can borrow from this experience to, to like form yourself into those different roles. Yeah, um, I, I certainly think so. I think, um, especially from advertising, and I think we kind of quickly touched about this, about the notion of responsibility has been um, such a big uh, 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 influencer in some of the career decisions that I've made. Um, and as a professional communicator, um, we, you know, we kind of, think up clever visual persuasions all the time to basically trigger deep emotional needs. And um, I, I, I've, I feel like I keep going back to that notion as a designer, despite the fact that I'm not actively participating as an advertiser or a designer in the world of advertising. Um, it always comes back to me like, um, you know, how is manipulation playing a role? You know, am I, as a designer, am I manipu manipulating people by using different tactics here? Or, you know, are we kind of just making more things when it's not required? And all of those, I feel like, continuously influences me in my design work. Um, and architecture is another, you know, as, as I feel like as a designer, in the advertising world, I felt like I was constantly contributing to ephemeral things that kind of stays mm -hmm. today, kind of like goes away. With architecture, it was kind of very different, you know, it was like, oh, I'm part of these projects that's changing the topographic map of an entire city, you know, this is going to stay put on this building for years to mm -hmm. come kind of a situation. And that kind of also shifts the attitude of responsibility and, you know, it kind of becomes important for, it, it became important for me to kind of define what are my values and how do I want to kind of um, instill my values into uh, being a responsible designer. Interesting. Um, like on that topic of persuasion, that's something that I have like tackled with too, like, especially you mentioned, like, how much are we making stuff that's just like, trash and like adding mm -hmm. unnecessary stuff into the universe whereas how much of the stuff they're doing is permanent but i'm curious as to like <laughs> what kinds of yeah like you mentioned as somebody who, who works in that industry now i can say yeah. you know it uh it lasts a short time but it lives on in our memories <laughs> oh <Yeah>. that's deep <laughs> in our collective consciousness no, but yeah. I, yes. I, I'm curious, like, did you ever have a moment where like you felt sort of like ethically in, um, yeah, like ethically responsible or ethically like conflicted, um, in terms of that, that manipulation that you're talking about? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think me walking away from advertising especially was a conscious decision it did not have happen by chance and and i was like I, there wasn't huge ethical conflict especially like i mentioned at that point i was kind of um um, um reflecting on my internal value system mm -hmm. and at that point i was like wait for me something like responsibility and empathy hold such 
I put both of these values on a pedestal in my life across everything I do in my life. And that was not really sitting well um, with my practice. And I, I was, and that, that's what kind of made me feel like I need to like press pause, um, especially in the world of advertising and um, kind of ethically look at my practice from, eth- from an ethical point of view and, and see, okay, I do want to play the player. I do want to design responsibly. I do want to be empathetic towards what I put out in the world and for the consumers to receive the work, consume the design um, in an empathetic manner. So there was a huge ethical conflict uh, at, at, at some point. Um, and I feel like it keeps coming back depending on who you're working for, how your client is, what the project is, um, the decisions you get to make, you're like sustainability versus like, sure, go ahead and just, you know, use this crazy ink that's just going to leave a mark behind. <laughs> Although it does not align with your um, um, ethical uh, or a belief system or a moral system. I think it's a continuing thing. And over a period of time, it's just how we kind of learn to A, deal with it or sometimes figure out ways to Trojan horse your um, values into projects. I was just going to say, it's interesting that you bring that up because when we were in grad school and there was all this emphasis, obviously, as there should be and as there continues to be on, you know, environmental issues and like global warming and that sort of thing. And then you just see the like pounds and pounds of paper and ink wasted on like drafts of like literal garbage i mean i'm talking about like you know you know what it is it's like an indesign file that's like the first sketch of like something that's gonna have like a hundred and it's like yes what are we doing there's this designer um god i'm gonna blank on his name because my brain's not working very well right now um but he he does a lot of studying of like printing in china he's a chinese Mm. designer um and he like uses like the most like insane techniques to print his books as like a commentary on like how they're being printed and like materially but it's also like you you know him i'm I'm sure i just can't think of his name right now but um Hmm. yeah i just i feel like there isn't enough being talked about about like the impact like people are talking about nfts as being bad for the environment it's like right clearly that's not the biggest problem we have right now Uh yeah um so i yeah i am curious about like that level of research and 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 james whatever you were gonna follow up with as well like i think also from my experience i think mine is like a little bit more classic in terms of like ethical trauma um i was working at a big advertising agency and then i had to like handle this packaging sort of redesign it wasn't even a redesign it was like fixing the copy on it but it was one me having to work on big pharma like it was clearly a a product that like kind of like an allergy product like you don't really need and it's not saving lives and then i was just like so depressed by the other people working on it like they clearly had like no soul anymore their life had been sucked out of them and i was just like yeah like i can't do this like this this not only like bothers me ethically, but it bothers me like on a soul level. Um, uh huh. Absolutely. Yeah. Actually, it was funny because when you were talking about um, like the ethics of design and manipulation and like agency world, like I I keep I I've had this recurring thought a lot, and maybe you 
can relate to it where it's like you think oh i should go into like medicine or i should go into science that's somewhere where you know these things are helping people or whatever but like in some respects those industries also have like high level of like manipulation going on in terms of like the, the way studies are conducted or how they're published yeah. in certain journals and who they you you publish something to be seen almost in the same way that like you wouldn't in, in design academia but it's like you know like citing these these weird studies that are accredited that do appear in journals but the only reason why they do appear in those journals is because those journals are funded by people who have interest in those like there's like all this kind of me mechanisms going on so i'm curious if maybe you could speak to like you know i'm always thinking of the thought well it's like well if you didn't want to be in a, an industry that's manipulating people with visuals why'd you choose design but at the same mm -hmm. time like there really isn't an escape from that like can you speak to some of that a bit too it's so fascinating. You kind of framed, you know, the other disciplines like that. I was like, oh, my gosh, that is so true. It's just not us. Um, yeah. <laughs> kind of made me feel good there for a second, just hearing that. Um, <laughs> but also the thing about um, I, I remember um, I'm trying to remember who I was having this discussion with somebody. I don't remember with who exactly, but um, we were talking about this idea of like, you know, when you're inside the industry, you have so much more power to bring about the change versus, you know, right. being an outsider and critiquing it. Um, and despite knowing that some of the work we do is manipulative and manipulation is not necessarily a negative thing altogether, right, right. just like how persuasion, you know, like you and I, you know, our email exchange was not manipulative. It, it was persuasive. You're like, Hey, this, 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 you know, and you're kind of like you bringing about an action from another person is a form of persuasion, which is not necessarily always a negative thing. Manipulation and gets a bad rap. Manipulation <laughs> certainly yeah. does. When persuasion is done wrong, when persuasion is done with an agenda, I feel like that becomes manipulative. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I was just trying to make it. <laughs> right? <laughs> and but same with graphic design, too. If it's meant to be manipulative, yeah, I think that is... an. A, a dilemma or that's an ethically conflicting thing but persuasive graphic design can uh, especially like in today's world from like a political front or um an uh, environmental front or just information and academia wise you know we are using design as a thing of as, as a medium of making people aware or just educating people about so many different things so i think it's it's a great thing when uh, uh, when we do it right and getting getting it right is probably the most complicated part yeah not having that's a soul actually, super interesting away. to think about like the idea of persuasion or manipulation as like kind of an inevitable force that has to be used like yeah. we're all using it every day like when we're having a conversation with somebody like we're trying to keep their attention and how you do that is by like making sure what you're saying is like clear and interesting and like to the point. So yeah, exactly. I mean, it's not, it's not necessarily the same thing, but they are, they share, you know, there, there's a lot to unpack there for sure. There's rhetorical tactics that we use all the time.
Welcome. Thank you for being here. I'd like you to take a moment to appreciate yourself and to reflect on how you've chosen to spend your day. Take note of the fact that you've set aside this valuable time to learn more about your industry and be open to its infinite possibilities. You are here. It is now. You are surrounded by like-minded thinkers, colleagues, friends, acquaintances, role models, and perhaps even some adversaries. You may be feeling overwhelmed, envious, inspired, hopeful, hopeless, anxious, eager, tired, burnt out, or energized. Wherever you are, take a breath in and try to instead simply see the bounty of goodness here today. The community of thoughtful designers from all around the world who have chosen to spend their day together in positive discourse about the work they do and their love for it. You are a valuable member of this community. You are part of something bigger than yourself. You see value in this larger scheme and seek knowledge by immersing yourself in its richness. If your eyes are open, you will see everything. The outcome rests mostly in how you decide to look. This will guide you on your journey and help you appreciate the goodness around you today. I think this brings us to our classic question. Uh, could you share a lasting experience that's affected you emotionally or psychologically? From my professional life? Um, oh my gosh. Design yeah, oriented. It could be personal, yeah, but just anything related to your design experience. Could be academic, could be uh-huh. friends. Yeah. Within. I can I can think of, I'm like there were like so many memories that just kind of like <laughs> hit me as soon as you uh, asked me that. Certainly, I think one um, probably, and this was like early on in my career. And like I mentioned, I dropped out of art school when I started pursuing my career. Um, uh, this was back in India, and it, I, I, it it was something related to strategy and numbers and budgeting, and I had prepared this. Uh, presentation and I had printed it out and I and I needed my creative director's approval um, immediately and he was in a client meeting and I remember walking in and giving him the sheet these numbers I I think it was media planning numbers and he kind of something was not tallying up and um, in the passing out of his day-to-day frustration and I think the client meeting was not going well whatever happened he was like did you even go to college? These numbers don't even like add up kind of a comment in front of the clients. And something in me, I think, shifted. Something in me ticked at that moment because I keep thinking of that so often. I've, be, I've thought of that so often throughout my career and throughout, I, I, I kind of like 
that stayed with me um, to kind of pursue my education and be constantly um, involved in academia. And, you know, the way you treat your team members, your colleagues, and kind of applying that into my pedagogy of, you know, how every thing you say, there were like probably seven words in that sentence. And if that can have that kind of an impact on your identity, um, mm. it, it, it kind of stayed throughout my practice. And I think it's going to stay for a very long time. Uh, but also, it was such a fortunate incident that kind of happened. I feel like um, it, it was persuasive in its own way of like, oh, my gosh, I've got to I've got to do something about this little comment. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, That's I've awesome. mentioned That's, this on the podcast before, but there was this one creative director I was working <laughs> on a Jaguar campaign, and like I was not very good at Photoshop at the time, and then he saw my mock and was like, "This is not Hyundai. This is Jaguar." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's that supposed to be an like... Italian accent for everybody. Yeah, it was supposed to be Italian, but I, I can't do accents. <laughs> <laughs> I was just gonna say, like, yeah, we. I feel like that hits so many points that i've we've talked about on this podcast but like that's like the best answer that we've no offense to the other guests that we've gotten because it's like <laughs> this is the thing that like sticks with me that like haunts me that like has yeah. driven me to like i mean i was gonna ask like what makes you not that this is the only thing but like what makes you kind of like want to pursue so many degrees and like move around so much and do and it's like that kind of restlessness is maybe you know it's not that that comment is the only reason why, but certainly like that comment triggered something in you that, that made you value uh, or realize yeah. the value. Not that he was right. Not that that person no. was right, but that, 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 that awakened something in you. And like we maybe hear things a certain way because we need those comments at that point in our lives, even if we didn't want them or even if they're hurtful, like we, we hear them a certain way. And that can motivate us to do things, even if the comment itself was like really hurtful and painful and like hateful, like doesn't yeah, mean that hurtful. it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I don't know. I find that interesting. Like those early experiences, like James was talking about. And then we, on our first podcast, we talked about this too. Like I always think about this guy who I worked for, who told me that I, that I had ruined uh, uh, the work experience that I had done with him because I had to leave the job like a week earlier oh. than I said I was going to <laughs> like, I apologize. Like, I don't want to like leave on a, a bad taste in anybody's mouth. And he's like, well, you have. Oh, so like, dear. I think about that all the time, you know? So yeah. it's like, I don't want to leave a bad taste in anybody's mouth, but um, yeah. so I think it's interesting that there's like kind of that thing for everybody and we're yeah. always trying to get to that. So I, I appreciate you being open with us about it because that's like a very specific i know yeah uh, <laughs> your need to have shifting careers like what are the points when you're like listening to yourself like okay i need to get away from this work and i want to go towards this work like what are the what are the things that you tell yourself and where are those points of like recognition coming from that's so interesting i feel like one half of what you said is true in my case about it's all it's been easier to recognize what you don't want to do because you kind of you know you wake up in the morning and it's not you're not motivated to do it anymore right. um, you're like oh it's the same thing again you know what am I really contributing 
um it, you feel the mundaneness it does it's not enjoyable it's not satisfying anymore and mm-hmm. you know it's you don't it, it it's a magical feeling when you go to bed and you're like yay you know something was approved or you know somebody loved what you did and you feel like you made a difference by a little chicken scratch on paper and when that mm-hmm. feeling kind of goes away and you know it's not you know you don't have that satisfaction especially when you're you know as i i feel like many of us designers identify ourselves design becomes a part of our identity it's not like a button you turn off after six o'clock and then you turn on at like nine in the morning like everything you do how you kind of structure your life how you construct meaning of everything around you is it's so inbuilt design is inbuilt in who you are as a being so right. it, it becomes so much more apparent when we are not happy with our jobs or or careers um or it was for me and i'm like you know if i'm going to be spending 40 50 hours in a week doing something and that's not going to make you happy happy is is very it, that's i use that very loosely if it's not it does not challenge you and it does not you know satisfy your soul that you're spending all your time doing something and you feel like you're not leaving a mark in whatever capacity However, that realization has been much easy compared to what what is it that I want to do next. Um, um, it's not about, I don't think I've ever been like, I've recognized this is exactly what I want to do. And that's why architecture happened or that's why Foda happened, the studio that I currently work at, um, which um, I love the kind of work that I'm able to do today as a designer within a studio um, that takes on crazy large projects, but we are a small team. We are about 11 of us. And I feel like I'm doing much more powerful, much more, a, a larger scope of work than I've ever done previously. Um, it, but it did not come from a place of like, this is exactly what I want to do. Um, but I just like being open and I'm like, I'm going to try it out. <laughs> it's not going to work. Sure. Job change. Um, career change, uh, not career, but maybe, you know, like a job change, you know, it's, it, it feels like dating, you know, probably is a good <laughs> metaphor to use here. I'm like, it's not, it's, I really tried. It's not working. There's no point as trying to push this hard together and you kind of like move on and to kind of seek for that fulfillment, that companionship um, somewhere else. And sometimes it works out as for however long it works out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I do think that there is something interesting to be said about, I mean, one of the thing, things behind this podcast for me, at least personally, I don't know if James, I don't think we've ever talked about it in this way, but there's sort of this idea of like this like ego death of the designer that's going on, at least for me, where it's like, I don't want to think that I matter so much on a project or in a in a situation that like, my feelings and like how I contribute are constantly being like evaluated by myself and those around me. It's more like wanting to feel aligned with like the values and mission of whatever is happening and like feel aligned like a relationship. Like, is it a good relationship or not? Like, is this client right for me and am I right for them? Or because it that's the, when that's not the case, that's when the ego really comes in, I think is like, 
you're not, you don't believe in my ideas. You don't trust me. All, all these like fears and anxieties bubble up. But if you're on the same page and like able to communicate effectively, you're not going to feel that sense of like need to be heard or need to be, to show your value. Uh, so I think that it's interesting that you bring that up too, but also wondering if you feel like you're like chasing some sort of like ephemeral thing that, that you haven't found yet, or you feel comfortable like kind of transitioning between these like different modes and just being like open to whatever happens. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think being open is, is such a key. It's like, you know, you know, we constantly hear um, the usage of don't be married to your job. It's, it's just not possible like everything that you said about like being disconnected and looking at things objectively as a designer it's such a huge challenge sure you can objectively look at a scope you can objectively look at um a list of deliverables um but you know when you like start drawing and you pick up that pencil and do that very first sketch um your your values and you know who you are as a person um kind of is 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 inherent in everything that you kind of design right. um it's it's such a difficult task to be objective all the time as a designer whether it's towards a client towards an organization you're working for um i continue to struggle with that because it's not always not everything is always aligned um, I, right. I struggle with the fact of like, what are the things I have to look at objectively, subjectively, and sometimes you just have to be pragmatic and sometimes it helps to be emotional. I feel like I sell better as much as I hate selling. I, 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 mm-hmm. I sell the concept or sell the idea better when I feel emotionally connected to it. I think I'm understanding this and I think it's connected, but you mentioned in our email something about a vulnerability bubble as consumers. Um, I'm curious what that means. Like, are we at high risk as consumers or as designers? Like, what does that vulnerability bubble mean? Um, I feel like as, as just as human beings, we mm-hmm. tend to believe that nothing bad can happen to us, whether it's death, disease, divorce, mm-hmm. or being laid off a job. We tend to believe that you know, or it happens to the, somebody else. It's not going to happen. We are, we just uh, live in this bubble to believe bad things don't necessarily happen to us. I'm not saying we have to live like a skeptic life as a skeptic, but uh, we, we do live in this bubble where we feel like, you know, and we are, or that advertising does not work on me. You know, we, we live in this bubble to believe that something does not work on me. It might work on everybody else, but, you know, I don't believe in persuasion. I do, it, nothing can influence me. I'm my own person. I have my own mind, which is absolutely true. But everything around us influences our decision making as well. Um, so I think um, and, and I'm, I'm, I continue to be curious about that, especially because of the pandemic and the COVID was like a glaring example of like all of us live, lived in this bubble, like what's not going to happen to us. Oh, it's, this is not a big deal. I'm just going right. to go about my daily life until like reality kind of hits you. Like you're this close to disaster hitting home. 
um, and, and that's an extreme example, but kind of using that around design, we constantly tend to believe design cannot influence me. That packaging did not make me pick up that bottle of wine or pack <laughs> chips, yeah. but it, it does, you know, and we, and, and that kind of brings me back to, um, double down on the fact that amount, the amount of power we have as designers, um, the amount of power we have to play, uh, not to play the amount of power we have to influence the psychological aspects of human beings in general mm-hmm. or thinking or how people construct their lives is huge. So vulnerability and invulnerability invul- kind of exists and we tap into that. Um, and the fact is we do com- live in this bubble where we continue to believe, uh, yes, everything she's saying does not work on me, you know, try me mm-hmm. kind of a thing, but you know, well, yeah, that's super interesting because one of the follow-up questions that we had surrounding this topic was like about the weaponization of vulnerability, which I think huh. is like one of the most prominent, I would say, weapons in culture in general, which is that the status quo discovers these sort of vulnerabilities and then takes them and uses them to get people who might otherwise not be interested in being a part of whatever their grand plan is to follow suit. So like, you know, it's like paying the punk band to write the song for your whatever, like these classic, like after Woodstock, all the ad agencies wanted to basically hire and like use these musicians from Woodstock to sell products. Like this has always been the way it's been done. And I think James and I, I don't, I think personally can relate to this idea of like being super interested in like a subversive design practice or something that kind of is there to to pervert and kind of like to, to push people away who may, who we don't really want to necessarily be interested in what we're doing, but Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. is constantly being upcycled into agency world or in, I mean, if you work at an agency, which obviously you have, how, how often are you just pulling like, the most artsy sort of behind this like DIY aesthetics in your mood boards to sell whatever it is you're selling. So it's like, I'm just curious what your take on that is, is like, how do you kind of make sure you're preserving vulnerability or like, and not like weaponizing it and what is, or what is the, what's, yeah. I mean, just what are your thoughts on it in general? I guess that's a lot. Sorry. I know, but (laughs) (laughs) um i don't know if we can really preserve our vulnerability you know because the very definition of vulnerability kind of like challenges that idea um i think probably just being thinking about things critically as just critical thinkers of like why are you buying what you're buying or do you really need that 18th pair of shoe and it's a problem that you're thinking about your 18th pair of shoe as is but just being making decisions by being critical thinkers is probably the best we can do whether it's about consumption whether it's about our health or policies and you know just challenging the status quo not for the sake of it but you know um I don't know. Maybe that's one way of preserving our sanity, our own vulnerability. Right. Um, yeah. 
and also not resisting it so much that you become a skeptic and that's how you lead your life right. where you're questioning mm-hmm. everything and everything becomes like doomsday situation yeah. striking you i mean there was like this period in like the last 10 years where this in the music world there was this thing called uh poptimism i don't know if you've poptimism? heard of it yeah so like there was there was like there were the rock the rockists right and like so it's like rock critics would just like shit on pop music for for like decades like the like classic lester bangs like this shit sucks don't listen to anything except for like dudes with guitars and then there was this whole move where pop music was being respected enough to be critically reviewed by these same people um Mm. and there was this guy named nitsa abebe who was like a pitchfork writer and a new york times writer i think at the time and like he kind of coined the term poptimism i think if i'm not mistaken and like it was this whole idea that like you could appreciate pop music from a distance enough but then you had like sites like pitchfork where i used to work that are now they're like only giving good scores like really good scores to kind of like i don't mean to say that but like a lot of the good scores are being given to pop music over these more like DIY bands or like these sort of like lo-fi people and and you sort of have this thing where it's like the nightmare came true where it's like <laughs> and, and it is confusing it's like was poptimism good like are is it good that we weren't skeptical or should yeah. we be because now Dua Lipa is like selling millions of records and like and lots That's of merchandise and lots of things and it's partially because of places like Pitchfork like I don't know um, so I'm like wow. kind of, that's my angle with this whole thing, I think. Uh, no, thanks for sharing that. It kind of makes me wonder if maybe skepticism is a good thing and maybe what we don't want to be is cynical, you know, around things. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it's like you have to, you can't like say, okay, all pop music is shit. It's just to sell stuff because there obviously right. is something within it that speaks to people that's why they like it like a melody you know in the same way that like an advertisement that really hits your emotions Uh speaks to you because it does something effective and is tapping into something yeah Yeah, i don't know (laughs) this is all like very philosophical and i didn't even it is very philosophical i love it but (laughs) but i'm so curious about like as as somebody who clearly has been in like so many of these different spaces and like also like thinks about these things from a critical a- academic standpoint like i'm curious where you might like end up with these thoughts like where <laughs> what's like the point that where you're gonna say like i've got it figured out or whatever i i hope i would i hope i'll not figure it out <laughs> yeah. it's it's just kind of i feel like i don't know what would be after i don't know if we will ever if all of us will ever figure it out which is kind of nice which is going to just keep us busy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, um, so usually at this point, we like to come up with a mantra. Um, oh, I'm trying, we've been we've we've gone through so many things that have had like a scope, but I'm trying to think of one. I, I let me think about this a little bit. So if either of you have any ideas, skepticism, not cynicism, or something like that. Hmm. Empathy and vulnerability are not weapons. Mm, but they can be. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's the problem with that, that one. I mean, empathy that's is so definitely true. a weapon right now. 
Totally. Yeah. <laughs> I recently heard somebody say empathy is bullshit without humility. Um, I have not like deconstructed that yet, but it yeah. just kind of stayed with me. I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> empathy precedes adaptability. That is heady. I like that. Yeah. yeah. I have one for you. Because you have to have some kind of emotional Sorry. empathic reaction to want to adapt, right? Mm-hmm. Like you had mm-hmm. an empathy for yourself in your advertising years to want to adapt. And same mm-hmm. with that trauma. Um, having, em- I mean, from my reading of that trauma is like you had to empathize with that person in order to adapt to like, I want to treat people better. Like that's mm-hmm. that kind of thought. I love so. that. I think that's, that's a great good. Empathy precedes adaptability. <laughs> Can I throw one more out there that's awesome sure. specific, which is sure. either keep keep vulnerability weird or keep empathy <laughs> weird. Yeah. Which I are, like that which one are too. both uh I don't know Austin, what they really yes. mean either, but keep Austin. Oh, I did not even make the yeah, connection. Yeah. <laughs> now I get it. I love it. It's so good. Because yeah. <laughs> I think if something's yeah. truly weird, then it really might have something weird is good of, yeah but i don't know if that's so both of those i think are you could disregard that one if you don't like it but i think the i think james's was really good too yeah empathy precedes adaptability yes well cool that. um shruti do you have anything else you like to plug or add <laughs> t-shirts coming out buy my new book yeah oh my gosh when's um, your album i dropping? wish my album dropping it's it's a pop album <laughs> but filled with optimism um no i'm kidding N- no but uh nothing except um just a huge thank you for having me over and um for having this philosophical discussion which was yeah such a refreshing thing after so long after a long day um i really really enjoyed our conversation Thanks. We loved having you too. Yeah. Really enjoyed it as well. I had a long day myself. <laughs>